so thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that one day we will stand face to face with you, and you will be ours for eternity. Oh, I long for that day, Father. But while I travel this earthly road, I know you walk beside me. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a seat. Good morning, Prince family. This morning, I'm away in Dallas, Texas at the Southern Baptist Convention. I had a speaking engagement on Saturday related to the convention. The convention starts tonight, and I'll be there for the next couple of days. I want to encourage you to pray for us. This is an important time for us as a Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we believe in the Southern Baptist Convention because we believe in partnering together for the sake of missions and religious education. That's why we're Southern Baptist, because I don't know of anybody that does missions and evangelism better than the Southern Baptist. And so it's a joy for us to partner with the Southern Baptist Convention. But this is an important strategic week for us, so be praying for us as you would that the convention would continue to go in the right direction and make good decisions. But this morning, in my absence, I've asked Jason McLeod, our student pastor, to preach for us today. I've really grown to love Jason and appreciate his ministry. He's doing a really great job. I have a student in the student ministry, so not only as a pastor and as a leader, but as a parent, I'm involved in this ministry and I'm consistently growing in my love for Jason, his precious family, and this ministry. I want to ask that you listen intently this morning as Jason preaches. He's a gifted communicator, a godly man. But can I encourage you as well to be praying for our student ministry? We're committed as a multi-generational church to raise up the next generation of people. Not only to be raised in the church, but to be raised in a way that they love God or committed to the mission of God as healthy followers of Jesus Christ. So pray for Jason this morning and pray for our student ministry. And I pray that God would begin an incredible work in this ministry that would not only affect this church, but would affect the rest of the world. I love you, Prince. God bless you today. We were singing a few moments ago, and just those words struck me to let the church rise from the ashes. Let us fall to our knees. Let us be light in the darkness. I think that's what we know we're about, right? And um, that's the way we pray. That's the way we long for. Whether our heart feels like doing it or not, we know that our heart, Scripture says, is wicked and deceitful beyond cure and we have to lead our heart and I was thinking in that moment how many times even as a paid professional Christian 
that I have to pray, and I think we all have to pray, that words like that become our life, become our prayer, become our heartbeat. So I, I, I think I want us to start this morning as we open God's word and um, as we look at uh, just the urgency to continue um, to partner stride for stride, side by side for the gospel as we've looked in Philippians over the last several weeks and um, even our emphasis as a church this summer um, to really go all in uh, as a family on mission. Um, and I think there's one of the most precious, delicate, important things we can do as a family is seek the Lord together. And uh, I think it would be really special if you could right now, if you are physically able, if you would stand, turn around, and put your knees to the floor in your seat, if you're physically able to do that, quickly and quietly as you can. And I want us to just start with prayer. As we look at God's word, and that we would ask him to open up his word, we would open up our eyes spiritual eyes to see this one thing, the need to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me just say this as you pray, declare your need to be full of the Spirit to do that. On our own power, we are powerless. And over these next couple, um, just a few seconds that we would fall to our knees, we would rise from the ashes we would be light in the darkness. Would you ask God and tell him, God, I need you to fill my heart with your spirit so I can do what you've called me to do, what you've called us to do. So, Father, we humbly come. We can bring nothing to you but our need for you. And God, thank you. Thank you that you looked down and you looked at us and you said, I don't need them, but I want them. I want relationship with them. I want to use them. I don't want to work in them and through them. God, you, your plans are perfect. And God, you could accomplish everything to advance your kingdom on your own. But God, you chose to awaken our hearts for our need for you. You saved us. You sustain us in this moment. God, I, I pray as we humbly bow right now that our hearts are Saying, Lord, make them soft. Don't make them hard. I don't want my heart to be callous. I don't want it to be cold. God, use me. Overwhelm me. And out of the overflow of my life, that people would see Jesus in me, working in me and through me. God, I have nothing to bring you and nothing to offer you but my need. So we need you, God. We want to advance your kingdom. We want Jesus to be exalted. We want our lives to matter. We don't want success in this church. God, we want effective, fruitful ministry. And we need your spirit. We need your power to do that. So, God, we just humbly come and ask you to speak through your word and open the eyes of our heart to see how urgent it is to take advantage of this opportunity of a lifetime to make eternal impact in the life of other people. God, do this for your glory and your glory alone, that Jesus' name may be lifted high above ours, our own name, our name of our church or denomination. God, that Jesus would be lifted high. And we pray this in the powerful, powerful name of Christ and his good name. Amen. Amen. As you take your seats, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, if you would, turn to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, chapter 24. And what I want to do this morning 
is I want to keep in step with our theme and our heartbeat as a church, not just this summer, but this is what we are called to do as believers and followers of Jesus, and that is to be selfless, that is to give up everything to follow Christ and to do what he's called us to do, because that is where joy is really found, and that's where his kingdom advances, that's where life will make sense, that's where fulfillment happens and satisfaction and purpose But before we look at this passage in Proverbs 24, I want to ask us a couple, two or three questions to kind of put things in perspective for us. We come to church, we sing these songs, we go to these Bible studies. I hope you've been coming this month. Um, On Wednesday night, we are walking through uh, all the great uh, commandment and and, um, great commission passages uh, as as a church body to just understand how important It is to know that we have the authority uh, given by Jesus to advance the gospel, to proclaim it, to have a motive to do so. This past Wednesday, uh, Pastor Josh walked us through Mark, uh, the last part of Mark Mark chapter 16, and um, that you actually proclaim it. And there's a motive behind doing that so people won't be condemned. People are going to hell. It's a real place. It's an actual place. And that people will go there apart from Christ. And that there is an urgency to do that in light of some of these questions. So I wanted to ask you to participate with me just by raising your hand. Um, Who would say in this room, whether a close friend, family member, acquaintance, a co-worker, that as a follower of Jesus, I understand that there are people around me that don't know Jesus, that there's someone, um, not just in a crowd, but there's a specific person I know by name I know at least one person in my life who I know doesn't know Jesus. If that's you, would just raise your hand. I know at least one person that has never trusted and followed Christ, surrendered their life, repented of their sin. Okay, most all of us. The second question is, based off Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine um, for it will ruin your life, but be filled with the Spirit. We just sang about it. We, we pray for the Spirit. I pray every morning for myself and my beautiful bride and my family. God, fill us with your Spirit. I want to be full of your Spirit. I want to seek hunger and thirst for righteous things and holy things. I don't want rebellious things and sinful, prideful, lustful things in my life. I want to be full of your Spirit. Paul commands us to do that. If you agree with that, that we should be full of the Spirit, would you raise your hand? Y'all see kind of where I'm going this, right? So my last question is, um, and I hope you believe this, as we um, have put basically our whole summer emphasis into walking through all the great commission passages that Jesus has called us to proclaim the gospel with our mouth to people around us who don't know him and to present to them the gospel to advance his kingdom so people would be saved and follow Jesus. Is that something that you would say by show of hands? I believe Jesus really meant that. He's called me to do that. And yes, I'm called to proclaim and share the gospel. Okay, so by our own admission, we all know at least one person who does not know Christ. By our own admission, we know we're to be filled with the Spirit. And by our own admission, we believe that we have been commanded by Jesus himself to go and make disciples. I always ask, uh, I love asking people, uh, we talk a lot about the freedoms we have in this country. And um, how special they are and how unique they are and how um, it should humble us 
and thank God that um, it's not illegal to do what we're doing right now. And just, you never know. I mean, around the world, that's not always the case. We're, we're the outlier, right? Um, and that we enjoy our freedoms. And if I were to ask you, what are you most grateful for that you have the freedom as a follower of Jesus to do? What, what might you say? Anybody? Freedom to worship. By far, the thing that I hear the most, and I have said a lot myself, the thing that has really burdened my heart and convicted me is that I'm not quick to say I'm free to witness without persecution to go to prison or lose my life or my business or my family. Why do we not quickly jump to go? It may cost me my reputation. It may make people look a little funny at me. I may be kind of like, the social outcast of my group or at work, but I'm not, I'm not going to lose a freedom to be <laughs> who I am and work where I work. I mean, it may. It started happening, but why, did, why is it that we don't say, oh, I have the freedom to witness, to evangelize, to share the gospel, to, to do, to, to share the greatest story ever told about the greatest one of all time whose name is Jesus, and he saved me, and I can't get over it. And I just want you to know I had a, such an encouraging uh, conversation. I'm not saying that's not happening here. I had a conversation with a gentleman in our church who uses his business as a way when he consults with customers and uh, makes a sale. He's presenting the gospel and that he's led people to Christ, even in the recent week or two, that that's happened. It, we're called to make disciples. We're called to proclaim the gospel. I, I love my bride. Anybody that's been around me for any given couple minutes it won't be long before I start talking about the things I love a lot and that is my beautiful bride Megan and our three precious children Brooks Ellie Grace and Karis I love telling our love story I love telling how I came to know Megan I love um, the day we got married I've got pictures of our 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 wedding day all over my office I've got a little picture from um, the time that we first met within like 30 seconds and um, you know I look at that and I'm just I remember I was like you know, just teasing. I was just like giddy and because the doves flew out from behind her and the, the smoke machine turned on. It was just an amazing moment. I've never gotten over that moment. And I do not get over my love for my bride. But let me tell you something. The greatest testament of our marriage that humbles us every day and it affects the way we live and think and talk. The greatest testament to Megan and I's marriage is that we have these three precious children. And bless their heart, people come up to me all the time and say, man, she looks just like you. Man, bless her heart. <laughs> man, Brooks, he, he looks just like his daddy. Mm, bless him. I hope he looks more like his mama every day. But that's the way it works, right? Think about it like this. If we have been called to make disciples, and God has given this opportunity of a lifetime to proclaim the gospel, to see a heart awaken to their need for Jesus, and they become born again, new life, they begin to look more and more like the daddy. Romans 8 says this, right, that God is very committed to making us more into the image of his son, the likeness of Jesus. And that is my prayer all the time, that I become less and less like Jason and more and more like Christ. If we've been called to make disciples and we know people that are lost and we know we're called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
if we know Jesus has given us the authority and the motive and the message to go spread this great news, why do we cower back in fear and in comfort? Proverbs 24 speaks to this, and I want us to look at that this morning. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Such a humbling couple of questions coming here. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? And does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? This passage of these three verses here had significant impact on my life many years ago. Not just as the call to be um, in full-time ministry, but as a follower of Jesus. This hit me to the core. And it, it completely changed the way that I view people, the way that I go about ministry, the, the wanting to feel this humbling responsibility and just this opportunity of a lifetime to make eternal impact for the kingdom. Not because we change hearts, we don't. God does that. But God, as we looked a couple weeks ago, to work out our fear, uh, work out our faith with fear and trembling and come before the Lord and say, Lord, all I can bring you is how much I need you, but God, it humbles me to want to be used by you and to bring your name glory, not mine, and to proclaim the best news ever told. So I think there's a few things to take away here this morning. It says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small, and it's just pointing to how limited we are in our own strength. This is probably the greatest struggle of my life, and I think for most of us, to want to control life, to control a situation, to control what happens to my kids, to control what happens in my home or at work or in my mind or in my heart or what I've set out to accomplish and do. We will find, and at the age of 32, I'm more convinced than ever with every passing day that on my own, I will fail miserably. You will fail miserably. This is so hard in this country because we're told from a young age to stand up tall and straight. Don't show weakness. And it's funny, in God's economy, the way up is down. And it's when we come humbly before a holy God who we desperately need. And with our weakness that we're made strong so we can, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, to delight in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's only in those moments when you're reminded how much we can slack and sloth and pull back to comfort to what we know and can control and how ineffective we'll be. One of my greatest prayers for myself for years and that we pray a lot as a staff around that table where we meet and pray, and we pray for us as a family, as a church family in this church, is that we don't celebrate success. It's easy to do that. But that we would pursue effectiveness. There's a big difference. You see that? God, you've not called us to be successful and for people to applaud things that happen. 
But God, you've called us to advance your kingdom to make much of you and not of us, not of our church, not of anything, but to exalt Christ. And we're reminded of that, that our strength is small, especially in the day of adversity. And here comes this beautiful command in verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Number one, if you're taking notes and we're talking about this opportunity of a lifetime, number one, we have to wake up to the gripping reality. There's a gripping reality. And we see it here in verse 11. It gives us a couple of pictures. Rescue those who are being taken away. That's a, being taken away is a picture of a blind man who's looking for water, frantically looking for water to satisfy his thirst, and someone who would take him by the hand away from water and deceive him. He be very helpless in that moment. Rescue those who are being taken away to death, to hell, to condemnation. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. The picture there of stumbling is someone who has no hope on the edge of a cliff as rocks begin to crumble and fall. And there's no footing, no place to hold on to, and they're just hopeless in that moment. And they'll be taken away to where? To death. Hell. Church, hell is an actual place. It is an always place. It is an awful place. And it never ends. Everlasting torment. When's the last time that we fell on our face and cried out on behalf of those people, not the sea of people we see, and we're like, we've got to share the gospel, we've got to go, and I don't even know what direction to go. Start with one person. Your father, who you've known your whole life, doesn't know Jesus or care to, or your brother, who's just walked away and doesn't want anything to do with this that you have given your life to, or your best friend. There are people all around us where the sea of people grows blurry, and we focus in on one person. Why? Because we're motivated with a motive that we don't want them to be separated, not just from us, but from eternal fellowship with God. It's an actual place. It is an awful place, and There is a gripping reality of this helplessness, hopelessness, hellishly lost reality for people who don't know Christ. One of the most traumatic things um, I've ever witnessed, and um, I'll spare you of all the details, but I I think it uh, it kind of brought me back to this moment. Our family, every summer, goes to the beach down in the Gulf um, with my parents and brother and sister and all our spouses and kids. It's just a great week. And um, a few years ago, we went, and it rained all week. You ever been to the beach, you know, when it rains all week, and you're like, we've played every board game, and we've fought over who won. We have eaten all the double stuff Oreos, and they're gone, um, and everybody else is at the grocery store, and they're out. Like, we've done everything. We just need some time on the sand, in the sun, but it's raining. That's what happened this one trip. And um, we stayed for a week, and toward the end of the week, a couple of days before we left, It was a break in the storm for about five, six hours, and everybody had been glued to the television, seeing what the forecast was going to be, and everybody knew there's going to be a break, we're going to get out there. Well, you know what happens. Everybody that's stuck in every hotel and condo and camper is on the beach at the same time. There's no come and go. There's not, we've got our umbrella here. Everybody's like, you know, on the beach at the same time. 
So everybody's like, oh, build the sandcastle quick. Take a picture for the scrapbook. Let's go. Everybody's like, oh, uh, eat your sandwiches. Eat your sandwiches. We got bunches. You know, it's just, ah, it's been raining all week. Let's, let's get a few minutes in. And there was just this sense of just frantic rush and hurry because we were all in the same boat, right? We only had a little bit on the beach. And the sad part of that is, if you've ever been to the beach, you know that a lot of people like to parasail. Now, when you're top-heavy, like me, you don't get your feet off the ground very far at all, on purpose or not, if you can help it. And some people love to parasail. And, like, the line is forever long. And they're trying to hurry, 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 hurry. We got to make money. We got to double up to catch up. We, you know, we, we got to make these people happy. They haven't been able to do this all week. It's been raining. It's been pouring. It's thundering. Red flags, double red flags all week. And they're parasailing and coming in and getting another people. Parasailing, coming in, swap them out. And there were, come to find out later, these two girls from up north who had gone down for the summer, both seniors in high school, and had been parasailing. And as the boat was pulling the parasail in and getting ready to get them off so other people could get on, the cable snapped. And all these people on the beach are listening to these two girls helplessly, hopelessly scream and cry for help. Until they eventually fell into the side of a hotel about four stories high. And the weight of the wind and the parasail caught over the top of the hotel to the parking lot in front of the hotel. And since the parachute was going that way, that's exactly where the girls went. One of the most helpless situations I've ever heard of, ever seen, nothing they could do to help it, wrong place, wrong time, whatever you want to call it, however you want to compute, it was dramatic, it was heartbreaking, heart-wrenching to feel so helpless and hopeless. And spiritually, people all around our life are doing that. They're calling for help, and we don't answer, and we feel like we can't do anything, or I may say the wrong thing. Make this a little more personal for me. Um, when I went to Georgia Southern uh, in college, I remember one day specifically getting a, a phone call from my mom telling me that one of my friends that I had gone to school with my entire life had passed away in a tragic vehicle accident, hit head on by a drunk driver, nothing of his fault, going the speed limit, seatbelt on. Um, was just known for his love for people, do anything for you. And I remember specifically being in my dorm room, sitting down at my desk when I got that phone call from my mom, and my mom was relaying the message to me. And it hurt me that he was gone, but I remember feeling so much conviction because for years, since around the first grade, he and I had known each other personally. Growing up, doing a couple sleepovers, doing birthday parties, until, you know, you start getting into middle school and high school, and people start to naturally separate and gravitate toward their crowd and their comfort and people that make them feel better about themselves. And he would still call the house. He'd still say, hey, what's going on? He'd still call and say, hey, let's go hang out. Because I was stuck in my pride and chasing things that would make me look better, feel better about myself and reputation. I remember so many times quenching the spirit when I would feel a conviction in my heart. Talk to him. Share the gospel with him. Ask him how you can pray for him. Do something. I, the opportunity is right in front of you. 
And time after time, year after year, I said, no, I got another agenda, and it's to advance my name and my reputation, not to help someone else. And that's the first thought that went through my head when my mom called me. So much heartache. Maybe God just wanted to use me in his life in a way that would have changed his eternal destiny. I don't know, and I'll never know, and I regret that. Who are the people that are willingly coming up to you in your life, asking for help? Megan and I have felt so burdened by this in our own neighborhood, just right outside of Statham, and we're just trying to do practical things to show people we love them. And even this past uh, two weeks ago, a neighbor coming into our yard in the driveway with tears in his face going, I, I know like the kind of people you are. I just need prayer. I need something. Can you talk to I People are calling for help all over the place. And I'm telling you, church, we have to wake up to this gripping reality that God wants to use us, work in us and through us to proclaim the gospel. Wake up to the gripping reality. Number two, we have a critical responsibility. This opportunity of a lifetime, we have a critical responsibility. You see those words there, rescue, hold back, deliver them. God has given us an amazing opportunity to play a part in his unfolding story. God does the saving. God does the redeeming. God wants and chooses to save us and hold us in this moment, our salvation secure, and that he's given us a responsibility to respond. We have a critical responsibility. Jude 23 says this, Rescue others by snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy with fear, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. I challenged our students this whole past year and a very strong emphasis back in the fall of uh, this past year by we're just, this is what we're about. We're about the great commandment and the great commission. These are the things we will focus on all the time. And we know we're supposed to share the gospel. We know we're supposed to do things outside of the walls of this church. But where do you start? I talk to students all the time and people all the time that feel that, where do, how do, what do I say? I'm scared I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or where do you, and I challenge our students with a series that we just called One. And for months, and still to this day, we still refer to it and still have students coming up to me who have just focused on one person very strategically, very, very prayerfully to watch God do the impossible. I remember uh, one of my favorite stories of um, my mother is that back in the 90s, she had prayed for her dad for years who had wasted the majority of his life doing horrible things, wasting so many opportunities. And my mom went down, we had uh, at Sherwood years ago, and they still do this, um, in the prayer ministry is there's cards called him possible prayer requests. With man it's impossible. With God it's him possible. He can do it. What are things that you have asked God to do that it would only be him and obvious that you could never take credit for? And my mom went and wrote on that card, Lord, I, only you can save my dad. I will do everything. And she had done this before. And um, to a lot of, well, Wendy, we just, we don't talk about that. I got that worked out. Me and God got something worked out. We don't talk about that. And one of the greatest privileges of my life was 
as a young man watching him pray to receive Christ and surrender his heart to the lordship of Christ at the age of 63 and, lead, and, and finishing well the last decade or so of his life and sitting at his deathbed with this Bible at 2 Timothy 4 talking about how he had finished the race and standing over his casket sharing his testimony. God saved him, but I was so inspired by my mom going on her face before the Lord. God, there's one person, and very similar with her mother and sister, and um, praise the Lord, my mom was able to see all three members of her immediate family come to know Christ months or a few years before their death. Praise the Lord for that. Where are the people in your life that there is this critical responsibility? God, I have to respond to this cry for help. I love the outdoors. I talk to many of you all the time. And I've been figuring out over the last year where the best places to go. Mountain bike and um, kayak. I love being in the water. I love being in the woods. And um, back home in Albany years ago when Megan and I were there, before kids, I used to go kayak every week. And uh, behind our home was the Muckalee and the Kitchafuni Creek that flowed into the Flint River. And I just had all these cool places to go. And um, I had friends that would want to go with me all the time. Hey, you kayak all up in those sloughs. Where, where can we go? And so I would take friends. And one of my best friends from high school um, called me. And he said, I want to go. And he's a big guy like me. We played offensive line together in high school. Went to college together. Uh, very successful businessman. A man's man. Really big, burly guy. Makes me look kind of small, believe it or not. And um, just the deepest, manliest voice you ever heard called me up. He said, McLeod. Got me a kayak. When we going? I said, well, uh, we'll go soon. Maybe the next couple weeks. It's been raining a lot. The water's up high. No, no, I got to get this boat wet now. Let's go. Let's go on to Muckalee. That's that song Luke Bryan talks about. We got to go now. And I said, all right, let's go. So we go put in on a Saturday morning. And uh, he's never done it before. And uh, he was the guy that I hung with all through high school. He's a great ahead of me, so I'm always trying to keep up with him. We pushed each other in the weight room. We, you know, we jockeying for position. You know, those best friends that always kind of jockey for the best position, you know, we did that all the time. And that played out, you know, into our adulthood on this kayak. He's on the kayak, and he's a little wobbly, top-heavy like me. And he's like, no, I got it, I got it. And he kept getting ahead of me. And what I noticed when we put in is the water was about seven feet higher than normal because of all the rain we'd been getting. Water was stronger, it was faster, and it was moving. And he kept getting out in front of me because, you know, that's just what us guys do. I got to outdo you now. And I remember coming up to a big log that's about as big around as me that hung across the creek. And I typically would paddle underneath it and kind of, you know, do my head one of these. Well, I saw it coming up, and all I could see was just the top of the, the tree just kind of bobbing. And the water was up over it. And because I remembered that, I said, Stephen, slow down, come back. And he goes, hey, there's a tree up here. I'm going to jump it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And he didn't have on a life jacket. You know, he's just too good for stuff like that. And he hits the tree, goes about a quarter of the way over it. And because the water's moving so fast, it begins to go sideways. And because he's a top-heavy individual like myself, guess where he went? Kerplunk. And it took about 10 seconds of him struggling and letting go of his paddle and boat to where he had one hand on one branch of that tree pinned under that log and all that was visible above water was his face. And that big, strong, burly, low-toned man began to cry for help. Help! Help! Jason, help! 
and I'm about 10, 15 yards behind him. What do you think I did in that moment? Did I look at that situation and go, well, obviously I'm not a lifeguard. (laughs) You know, I haven't been first responder trained. I, I might mess it up. I don't know. Maybe he can figure it out and I'll go over on the bank and just pray about it. No. I got myself out of my boat. I swam directly to him. I bear hugged that tree and I grabbed him by his shirt and I said, look at me. Calm down. I'm right here. Let's pray because he was not praying. He was saying other things that are not included in prayer. (laughs) In a high shrilling voice and I said, calm down. I'm here. It was one of the scariest things in my life. It was a struggle. It took us almost 20 minutes. And I'm telling you, when all you got above water is one arm and a head for 20 minutes in fast-flowing water that you know people have lost their life at before, it's stressful. And it's hard. And it's a struggle. But by God's grace, we got out of that creek that day. Bumped and bruised and our pride hurt. But I'm telling you, I had a critical responsibility in that moment to go save my friend. Probably the least qualified person to do that. I promise you. Because it was hard. Church, there are people all around us that are crying for help and we do nothing. We have a critical responsibility which leads to the last thing. Avoid callous reactions. Avoid callous reactions. Wake up to the gripping reality. We have a critical responsibility. And avoid callous reactions. Verse 12. If you say, behold, we didn't know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? And does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? James 4, 17 says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. There's a picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 3 of Ezekiel's call. I want to read this to you quickly in, in light of not hardening your heart toward people and avoiding the callous reaction we naturally feel toward people. That it's not easy, but rather hard to love and to go out of our way for. Ezekiel 3, verse 17 through 20. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning for me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin. But you will will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. One of the most important positions in a fortified city in the time of the scriptures, was the watchman on the wall whose primary responsibility was to alert the people the sign of any danger of an opposing army coming in to 
raid their city, to kill them, to take all their belongings and to seize the city. And it was well known if an enemy was easily led in by a timid, fearful watchman, that he was despised by the very enemy he led in. Avoid callous reactions. And this watchman would look out and he would see and it would be one thing for him to turn around and sound his trumpet loud and clear. Batten the hatches. Protect the women and children. Men, bar the gates. Get the weapons. It's time to fight. It would be his responsibility to avoid the reaction to be fearful because the other option would be to frantically, oh, the enemy's coming and, and just run away and hide in fear and once the enemy would come in and take the city and, and take everyone's lives, that they'd come up to the watchman. Oh, it's the watchman. He so easily let us in. You clean this up. Their blood is on your hands. We have to avoid callous reactions. Now let's talk about that cry for help. <laughs> My friend in that boat and in that horrible situation. I got to thinking, and I'm, I tell students this all the time because I've found that when they do make themselves uncomfortable and they begin to share the gospel, they hit walls with people. Maybe this happens for you, especially with a close family member or friend, or it's really hard with the people really close to, you know, and it comes out in phrases like this. Well, we talk about politics, but that religious stuff had just. That's just that thing we don't talk about. Can I tell you, can I translate for you what that means? Help. Help me. Don't know what I'm doing. Or, won't you get away from me? You don't talk to me. You, you don't know me. You don't judge me. You don't talk. Can I tell you what that means? Help. Don't give up on me. I don't know what I'm doing. And just come before the Lord with a, God, I'm not perfect, but I want to faithfully walk with you. and I want to proclaim this gospel, and I want to be hard to offend and quick to forgive and quick to love and quick to proclaim the gospel to people. When if, even if I get a wall or if it's just that awkward moment where I don't know what to do. I'll close with this story. One of my favorite stories and favorite missionaries in the late 1800s was a very wealthy young man going off to college and arguably the best cricket player in the world. His name was C.T. Studd, and he was a stud in every sense of the word. He had everything offered to him, everything at his fingertips, had reached the top, played cricket through his teenage years uh, and into his college years, was very famous and well-known in England and around different countries, for his ability to be at the top of his game. It's so young. And a traveling preacher came by their home while he was in college and presented the gospel to him. And he fell on his knees and cried out to the Lord to save him. And then he dropped everything at the height of what he had been working for. And he gave away his inheritance um, to missionaries all around the world and began to go to the hard places to reach. Went to China for a number of years and Africa. And people would often come to him and say, C.T., stud, the man. Like, what happened? What, what changed? Why did you go and give up everything to go like, advance the kingdom of God? And there's other people to do. Why would you do that? And this was his response 
time and time again. Some want to live within a sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Church, there is a gripping reality, a critical responsibility, and we must avoid callous reactions. 